enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations final girl chase after her don't let her get away but first the slumber podcast massacre Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I get together. We talk about a different movie within the horror genre from your well-known classics down to that rare gem that makes you ask how to get burned on the back of your video store (laughs) shelf. This week, Tim and I, as we kick off Horror Through the Cages, our month-long mini-series. I don't know, special special edition. I like mini-series. Mini-series, all right. <laughs> uh, horror Through the Cages, we're talking about 2006's... Okay, I found this on the web for how nope. many series are there. Oh, Siri, thank you. Okay. Hey, it's our first guest star. <laughs> My Siri. <laughs> uh, we're doing 2006 The Wicker Man. Uh, Tim... Shut! Oh my God! God damn it! <laughs> Stop! All right, maybe a series should just do this show. I think we're. Yeah. I'm going to leave all that in too. That's fun. Okay. So anyway, 2006, The Wicker Man. Tim, let me ask you a question. How do you how do you feel about police who overstep their jurisdiction? What do you, what do you think about a? Uh, cop that throws his power around too much this isn't a uh all cops are bad kind of thing but um you know i think there are cops that know the work within their boundaries but some who don't what, what do you think about those cops well I, I think that it's probably it's a job that i wouldn't want to do let's put it that way um sure. To know that you just like day after day after day, you're just lied to repeatedly or harassed or verbally assaulted or whatever. Like, I think that I I know some police and I and and they're great people. And I think, though, that any job that that goes through that or even like a lot of first responder jobs, like if you're if you're somebody that's having to deal with people usually at their worst. I mean, nobody calls the police because they're having a great day, you know? (laughs) Sure. So things have gone horribly wrong to the point that you have to, in fact, call the police. Like that's where these guys live every single day. For us, it's like, you might go your whole life and be like, man, I hope I never have to quote unquote, call the police. Right. Because it, it just that phrase elicits like shit has gotten out of hand. And those guys live in that world every day. So I think that before I would want to judge any of those guys, I would say that it might be great if they had kind of like a high school, like they just had some guidance counselors there <laughs> just in the station at all times just ready to let these guys talk it out a little bit. Right, you know, yeah. I, I, th- I think a, a psychological assistance angle would do a lot of good. Okay. <laughs> but uh, for those now that, that answers just, the question about what do you think about cops? But I'm asking about a cop who abuses his power. Well, that's not what you should do because that's, 
because it's a lot of power. Let's face it. It's, right, it's yeah. one. I mean, it's, this question was a little dicier than I had anticipated. Well, it was it's you know what? It's a little it's a tender situation when you have a job that lets you carry a loaded gun at all times. So if you're going to be somebody to overstep your bounds, I'd much rather you be the assistant store manager at Menards than somebody with a loaded gun on them. <laughs> like that's let's, let me put it that way. If, if you've taken on that responsibility, then you gotta, you gotta really check yourself. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Uh, well, I mean, the only reason I asked, <laughs> <laughs> we looking for a segue here. <laughs> Was because Nicholas Cage in this movie is a cop who uh, grossly abuses his power. It was one of several problems I had with this film. Yeah. And jurisdiction. You started out asking the question about jurisdiction. Like you can't go to an island. Yeah, I guess I literally. Yeah, I wasn't even I was trying to be more far more esoteric about it. Yes, literally (laughs) even going overstepping your jurisdiction by two states. Right. And water, like lots <laughs> yeah, of yeah. water, like ocean. Yeah. Okay. Well, what we're talking about, we're talking about 2006, The Wicker Man. It was a remake um, from a 1973 uh, British film. This was written and directed by Neil LeBute. Butte? It is LeBute. De- LeBute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it stars uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, Kate Behan. I mean, uh, she has a large role, but. I I don't think she really did much after this movie or before it. Uh, And then uh, Ellen Burstyn. Two Academy Award winners in this movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Ellen Burstyn is fantastic. I mean, when when you give a performance, when you give a performance, I mean, just just in general as an actress, when you give a performance that's so good that I borderline refuse to watch the movie ever again because it's so unsettling <laughs> then you've you've got some good chops there yeah and she does and that's you my know favorite theater advice to give someone who's maybe like or is like oh, i don't i don't know if the show's going well i don't know and i i love to say there's nothing wrong with being the best part of a bad show yes <laughs> and yeah there's no shame in that no no shame and she is she's she is she, she's almost I, I i think she's She's movie proof. Like it doesn't matter what you put her in. She's going to not completely suck. Yeah. And there's nothing uh, complex or compelling about her role. There's, I mean, there's nothing new about her role, Uh, but uh, it's engaging. She's engaging and um, looks great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, passive aggressive woman is not breaking any boundaries down. But um, I'm I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, everybody. We <laughs> we are we are going to have to talk a little bit about gender politics in this though, because oh for sure the, the movie begs it. But no, I I kid. I uh, I love women. I think women are great, and uh, there should be more of them. Yeah, but just yes, maybe not with you know murderous you know tendencies on it they island. already outnumber us tim let's do they cool. really do they, they do. Well, i guess it's like like 51 percent to 49 percent it's Man. like you know having controlling of a company but the company doesn't let you control it <laughs> uh <laughs> this movie had a budget of 40 million dollars box office 23.6 oh that's a bust yeah and i i didn't really pay attention while I was watching. I went back to be like, did this pass the Bechdel test? And I, I 
I'm like, certainly there has to, with as many women that are in this movie, uh, there certainly has to be a point where they're both talking about something that's not a man. But as we find out, kind of everything has been planned around Nicolas Cage. So can they talk about anything without it? You know, I know exactly being about Nicolas Cage. So I don't think this movie passes the Bechdel Wallace test. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, like, even if they're having a conversation in the movie about, like, do we have enough two by fours and nails? (laughs) It still kind of has to deal with him. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the movie is flooded with females and yet still might. There is one other man which they're like, did you uh, take care of the other thing? And the thing is the other guy. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Um, All right. Let's. Well, first, let's before we like really get into this movie, let's just kind of take a step back. Tim, happy new year. It's great to see you. I hope your holidays were awesome. Um, it's uh, it's a new month, it's a new year, and we're we're filling January up with Nicolas Cage. It's his birthday, um, his birthday month, it's his birthday month, (laughs) which I'm not in favor of, but for Nicolas Cage, he gets one. My wife tried pulling that stuff very early in her relationship. I'm like, she tried that with a birthday week, and I'm like, that does not happen. I will not celebrate. You can do that. I will not celebrate a week. I don't want a week. Um, but yeah, Nicholas Cage, we're giving him in a whole month. And really this came about, we had other plans. And then I saw a trailer for one of his movies. And I was like, I didn't even know this movie existed. I really want to watch this. And then I started thinking, I'm like, well, he's done other horror movies and it would be kind of just fun to do a bunch of Nicholas Cage movies. Cause I don't think, you know, no one doesn't like Nicolas Cage. You can be like, he's not good or, but, but you can't watch him and just be like, not, I'm not entertained. Right. Yeah. No, there's, uh, he's a very, very fascinating person, a very, very fascinating um, entity in, in Hollywood. And there, I don't even know where to start. I'm I'm just going to throw some stuff out there because I I think, yes, you're right. It's, it's important that we give uh, our audience the setup as to, why Nicolas Cage deserves to be talked about for a month. <laughs> yeah. One of the, the more cool things that that guy has pulled off in his career is that everybody knows that there's plenty of nepotism in Hollywood, right? That, that your dad was a producer or your mom was an actress. And that's how you kind of got your start. The funny thing about Nicolas Cage is, is that everybody knows that he is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. And yet, for some strange reason, and a lot of that reason is probably his talent, everybody knows it, but nobody really weighs that when considering Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Like he is completely. He didn't like start working with him. Yeah. Like he, his career he is completely independent from. Right. Well, they, they did rumble fish together. Um, oh, when, okay. when right, right, right. But, but that was like right at the beginning. Uh, exactly. Yeah. He, he might've given <laughs> when his career would be starting. Uh, that's not when nepotism <laughs> comes in handy. Right. But even if he, if he helped him get started a little bit, the thing is like, I could sit here and think about Gwyneth Paltrow, right. And G- Gwyneth Paltrow is, is talented. She's pretty. Um, she can, you know, do musicals. She can, uh, 
do comedy. She's she's great. But I always still think about the fact that her dad is a producer and her mom is an actress. Like it doesn't it shouldn't take away from her. But you always kind of have that in the back of your mind. Well, I don't think that's the case with with Nicolas Cage. So that's that's number one. Number two, I'm just going to come right out of the gate with some exciting shit right here. (laughs) Ethan Hawke is quoted as saying. Nicholas Cage is the only other person to do something new with acting since Marlon Brando. Wow. And that is a hell of a statement that I am on board with a thousand percent. And the reason why he cites Brando is that Brando, when, when he came onto the scene, he's using the, the Stanislavski method, but it was lightning in a bottle. It was a watershed moment. I mean, it was, it was just this, this perfect person that encapsulated this old style of acting uh, from, from decades beforehand that he had learned. And he was just the perfect vessel for that style of acting. And, And what that style of acting centered on was naturalism. So then everybody and their brother and sister and everybody in the whole world suddenly has an obsession with naturalism and acting. And that's where you get your, you go on to have your, um, your De Niro's and your Pacino's and, and the kind of high watermark for good or bad acting is measured by how naturalistic of a performance that you're giving. Yeah. Well, then comes Nicolas Cage and it's, he's like, what about the performance side of it? What about the operatic, the spectacle? And he kind of calls it, well, he's called it a few different things, mega acting, He's called it Western Kabuki. Yeah. Um, and he's got a, a few different names for it. Uh, we people call it cage rage. <laughs> um, but he's got this style of acting that is sort of, it's not exactly natural. It's over the top it's, is probably yeah. the, the most obvious way. But the thing is, think about this. Think, think about how important this is. If you were a, a sculptor and you made a, a a sculpture of a tree and and you made it sort of abstract and maybe it's got more rounded uh shapes and it's more undulating and it's different you know pastel colors or something and you did in sort of an interpretive style on on your piece and it would be like somebody coming in and saying well that doesn't look like a tree at all uh, a tree is brown and it has bark and it has branches and it has leaves on it that's what a tree looks like and that would be to dismiss Anything that didn't look exactly like a tree. And that sounds horrible. Like, who wants to live in that art world? (laughs) Right. Well, Nicolas Cage is doing the same thing with acting. He's like, why does everything have to be so, like, succinctly natural? Can't I put a little, a little, you know, zest, a little flavor, a little sizzle? And, uh, and he gives a lot of sizzle. Oh, yeah. So that's it's something whether you agree with that, that that term or not. Oh, and also you've got Sean Penn, uh, Mr. Fun himself, uh, (laughs) Sean Penn saying, I I think in a sort of backhanded uh, or just sort of like a a passive aggressive insult, says that uh, Nicolas Cage is is no longer an actor, uh, more of a performer, which I think he was trying to be insulting there. But truthfully, I think that's a compliment. Yeah, that he's doing something different. And I, I think, and the, this is the, the most beautiful part of the whole thing, the, what I've just said, is that the public's impression of Nicolas Cage is that he is some wild, unhinged, loose cannon. 
When the truth is, even when that guy's going fucking bonkers on screen, he has that thing dialed down to the most perfect, absolutely crafted to the millimeter, to the intonation, to the word intonation, to the rhythm, to the exact detail. He's got that thing calibrated just the way he wants it. And that's that's amazing. Yeah, I was watching an interview with someone who had worked with him and they were like, when he is on set, he is demure. He's quiet. He's very focused. And then to watch him then just be, okay, we ready? <laughs> and just go crazy. And they're like, it's amazing to watch because he's not that person. But yeah, like you said, he loves, like they said, he loves just the drama of life. Like he wears costumes. He doesn't wear clothes anymore. You know, like everything he wears is uh, expressing something and he loves merging genres like that Western Kabuki or, uh, um, yeah, he's just, uh, and he's he's got. I, I think I think a lot of people just go, well, he does a lot of crap, which he does. He makes a lot of oh yeah bad choices, but no one has ever said, yeah, he just like walked onto set like he was getting a paycheck. Like right. even every bad or dumb movie he's done, people are like, well, I mean, he took it seriously. Yeah, well, and look at the Wicker Man. We. Nobody, including us, would be talking about this movie 15 years later if it wasn't for Nicolas Cage. I mean, the rest of the movie is dull as hell. And and it would have been utterly forgotten had it not been for (laughs) some really memorable lines and scenes, um, of which there are many. Yeah, or some memorable lines that aren't even in the movie. (laughs) Right, right. But um, no, I I was... I, I like the perspective that we'll be sharing here. I have not seen the original. I know that you suggested it and I wanted to see it. I really did. Um, but I, I don't have any frame of reference. Yeah, it's not other crucial. Than, other than this movie itself. It's just like if you want to watch a good, a good movie. But now so, you kind of know the, you know, the, you know, the surprise and everything. It's not as female centric as Christopher Lee is like the bad guy in the uh-huh. first one. Um, it's just more pagan cult. It's not, uh, it's not a story about how women can't run their own business without the help of a man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, well, let's, let's, uh, throw out Nan some here and then let's yeah. talk about uh, the Wiker man. Okay. <clears throat> Here's Nan some. Highway patrolman Edward Malice receives a letter from his former fiance that her daughter is missing. He visits the commune where she lives, a small remote island in the Pacific Northwest called Summer's Isle. There, he meets a quasi-hostile group of female bee and honey farmers who lead him down a mysterious path towards the truth behind the girl's disappearance and a ritual that's definitely going to bring back that honey. (laughs) Yeah, whether he thinks it will or not, whether he says it will or not, yeah. Yeah, that's um. This always happens with the when when you give Nan some when you when you say it, you know, concisely like that, and you package it all together in a in a brief synopsis. It sounds great, right? And, and this it was the first time it was the Wicker Man. Yeah, that one was good, <laughs> but um, this one. Oh gosh, it's, it's it's really it'll be really interesting for us in this episode to trace exactly what the the cause or causes are that this thing went so far off the rails. But yeah. apparently it started 
as uh, just a, a sort of labor of love for Universal Pictures. Like they really wanted to do a remake of this film um, for years and years before this movie ever even started shooting or, yeah. or production. And and meanwhile, Christopher Lee and the original director are trying to get their own like remake made. Right. And they end up doing an I, I guess what they would call a inspired by movie. I don't know. It's called The Wicker Tree. And it's essentially the same movie, just with some elements changed. It's in the Wicker canon. It's yeah, it's in the Wicker uh, cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but for, for, yeah, for whatever reason, they were just hung up on this, this movie. And I don't really know who went to whom, but, um, Neil LeBute was, uh, uh, or is a playwright and had directed some movies and they, they, you know, brought him into the, the idea of doing a remake and basically asked him the way he kind of wedged his way in was that they asked him, how, how would you change it if we were to redo it? And he kind of was saying, well, maybe we shy away from this sort of religious aspect and go for more of this matriarchal society um, and, you know, gave a few other details and they were like, that's great. And, and there's nobody better to write it than you because you just thought of it. And he's like, <laughs> oh, okay. So, so he writes it and Nicholas Cage, it, this is kind of interesting, gets uh, on board with it because of none other than Johnny Ramone, uh, guitarist of the Ramones. And okay. at the, at the end of the movie, the, at the end, yeah. it says something about Johnny Ramone. I'm like, wait, of the Ramones? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. I'm glad there was. Okay. And Johnny Ramone and Nicolas Cage were very good friends before Johnny Ramone passed away. And Johnny Ramone was a huge horror fan. And Nicolas Cage, not so much, not that he didn't like it. It just wasn't, you know, a genre that he had watched a lot of. So he would go over to Johnny Ramone's house and uh, Johnny would have all his DVDs up and Nicolas Cage would look at those and say, well, I haven't seen this one or that one. And then they'd watch whatever ones Nicolas Cage hadn't seen or wasn't familiar with. And one of those was the original Wicker Man. And he really liked it. Nicolas Cage did. And he knew that it meant a lot to Johnny Ramone. So when Johnny was sick and, and dying, he's that kind of propelled him to want to be a part of it and help it get made. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's how that started. But the back to the Neil LeBute thing. So this could be part of the, one of the, the basic ideas or platforms for where this movie started to go wrong from the very beginning. Neil LeBute had been criticized by feminist groups and, and a few other people or groups of people for being uh, misogynistic. And th the one main play that eventually became a movie was in the company of men that has to deal with men kind of manipulating this one woman oh, into, yeah. you know, having her fall in love with them. And then they are going to break up with her because they're, you know, tired of women and they, they just want to get some sort of revenge. But have you seen you know, it? I, I have not seen it. Oh, no, it's so good. But, but and that's Aaron Eckhart is so good and you love him. And then by the end of the movie, you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so slimy in it. And I'm, I'm given to understand without having seen it, that if anything, in fact, I read an interview that said that if it came out today, it might even be considered a feminist movie because it, it, it sort of displays men at their worst. Yeah. 
So there's really nothing misogynist about it at all. It's actually quite the opposite. Very similar to a show that you and I were in, Hurley Burley, which I remember when I was even pitching that to our local theater. And they felt that it was an outdated misogynist play, uh, a couple people, missing the point that it was actually condemning misogyny by simply laying it out for everyone to see. Right. Um, so that's really the point, you know, the layers of that uh, that show along with In the Company of Men. So a lot of people think, and Nicolas Cage has a very interesting quote that I want to read for you now. Um, this is sort of in response to after the backlash of this movie. Nicolas Cage says this, there was a mischievous mind at work on the Wicker Man, you know? You know what I mean? And I finally kind of said, I might have known that this movie was meant to be absurd. But saying that after the fact is okay, but saying it before the fact is not because you have to let a movie have its own life. So that's a really crafty way for Nicolas Cage to kind of back away from any accountability by right. saying that there was a mischievous mind, at, meaning Neil LeBute, and that maybe they knew that they were going for some sort of, you know, kind of uh, comeback at these feminists that had attacked Neil LeBute. Um, But I don't know if I necessarily go for that. Because first of all, it's now I read that quote too, and I just kind of read that as I knew what I was making. I was like, maybe this is shit, but <laughs> right, I can't really. I'm he's a professional, and I think he. I don't think he does that when he works on a movie, and he's just like, I'm going to. I think he trusts his directors a lot. I think he trusts the people yeah. he works with. So he was like. Okay, you know, I can say now, looking back, yeah, there was a lot of like nonsense, but at the time, I'm not going to, and I'm just going to do the best I can for, you know, in, in hopes that I'm helping this person with their vision. But that's an interesting take on it, on the Neil, on, on Labute. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I, it, I, I would probably lean towards what you said uh, as well, as far as an interpretation of where he was at with the movie. But then again, it could always be an instance of somebody kind of walking a decision back after they've made it and kind of saying, oh, wait, we meant it to be that way, you know? And so you never right. really know how but much. Here's the thing. We're going to talk about a lot of scenes in this in this movie. No matter which one we talk about, there will be bad decisions in it. Oh, yes. And it's actually, I just watched, um, we just watched the new Wonder Woman movie, which is mm -hmm. not not very good. Um, but we'd also just watched that new George Clooney movie, which was depressing as hell. So I was just like, I don't care what happens in Wonder Woman. I'm going to love it. <laughs> but now in retrospect, it was a very bad movie. But I was watching a, a review on that and they said something in that review that I all, that I felt rang true for this and kind of what you just said, where because, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's like a fun superhero movie. Nothing matters. And the guy's like, at some point something has to matter. Yeah. Like it's okay to have things that don't matter, but you have to have something that matters at some point. Right. And exactly. And, and the thing is exactly what you just said, you can play. I mean, you can have your fun, but you can't overdo that because you risk losing your audience before. Holy God. Did you hear that? No, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I had a, a, this is the this is the episode of like computer prompts. I just had 
like a, a dulcet bell tone just scream directly into the middle of my eardrums. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. Um, but so what was I saying? <laughs> oh, yeah. OK, so here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. If you read about the original Wicker Man and this is I, I challenge you to read any article about it. And it's going to mention this, that part of the if not the, the main appeal of that movie is the fact that it takes you on this journey and no matter who you are or what you think might happen, the ending hits you in a really sobering way that you're just not expecting or that, that it would be taken that far. So it was kind of known for that, the original Mm-hmm. For that ending, just being a, no matter what comes before it, that ending happens and it's just it's just uh, glues you to your seat. So I think the problem was is and, and this is what I've read. Neil LeBute was very aware of that. And I think that he thought that he could play around a little bit and that all of it would be fine as long as that ending happens. And, right. And it kind of shocks everybody like he was thinking we're going to be. A but little- that's the part. If you know anything about the Wicker Man, that's the part you know that's coming. Well, well, yeah. If you know, if you know anything about it, right? Like you can't have that part and call your movie and call it the Wicker Man. You know, <laughs> right? It's like it's a, we're remaking Jaws. It's with a deer. Well, and and the thing is, when it when it comes to to this movie, um, one the one thing that I keep comparing it to, I keep going back to is I think. That in some ways, uh, Neil LeBute was trying to make his The Shining. I think he was trying to make his version of The Shining. There are a couple very specific scenes that he just is trying to rip off completely. Um, When Nicolas Cage is just near the climax, when he's walking through the house and he opens these doors to just what are supposed to be unsettling. That was part Shining, part uh, People Under the Stairs. I was like, is this the same house from People Under the Stairs? (laughs) Right. But the thing is, like, okay, here's the thing about The Shining. Like, when you've got a, a, a director as talented as Stanley Kubrick, he knows how much you can play around. And he and Stanley Kubrick loved huge actors. He by huge or large actors, I mean people that are overly expressive. Yeah, he, he loved scenery chewers like he just he thought that was great, and you can see that in his films, and you can see that in The Shining, where Jack Nicholson is. Let's face it. Uh, he's doing a little bit of that mega acting himself in that film. And I mean, it's done very, very well, but you know, (laughs) your average like insane person isn't going to do the Wendy (laughs) darling light of my life. Okay. So he's having a little fun, but you can, why? Because it takes place in this enormous and enormously empty hotel so you can fill it with that big of a performance and it all fits the tone yeah but this movie and i just said the magic word right there has no fucking clue what its tone is no. and that's usually one of the first questions that professional actors will will say when they come into a, a movie is what's the tone on this like are we going are we going silly are we going satire are we going serious what's the tone yeah because so much of that tone isn't necessarily on the page it might be affected by in post-production with uh you know music editions and editing and that sort of thing so as an actor you really want to get a a handle on that before you launch into to your work. Right. So the tone on this, I mean, where do you, where do you feel the tone is on this movie? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Cause it's, um, I mean, 
it tries to be so serious, but there's so much absurdity in it that I can't take anything serious. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no suspense. Like this is called a horror movie. This is probably our least horrorish horror movie we've covered so far. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, it's just I don't know. Let's well, let's just start talking about some of these scenes. Yeah, let's get into it. Because I have a I, I'm gonna have a lot of questions for you along the way because I'm sometimes I, I sometimes I love to read into the deeper stuff so much that I miss what's happening on a most basic (laughs) level in a movie. Uh, So I might, I might ask for your opinion, your help on some of that stuff. Okay. Um, So, so Ed, uh, Nicholas Cage plays Edward Malice. Um, So already like this character is first, we get a really crazy uh, cameo by Aaron Eckhart, which without no, like, when I first saw this, I was like, that did look like Aaron Eckhart, but he had one line and left in the first frame of the movie. Essentially. <laughs> I didn't realize who like Neil uh, debut was love you debut. what I say? Yeah. Love you. Love you. Thank you. Um, th- th- then it all made sense. I'm like, Oh, favor in the company of men. Okay. I get it. Um, but it's like Nicholas cage is he's, he's a cop. He's a highway patrolman. He seems to be with a partner. But then later when he's out and about, he's on his own. So they must have just been meeting for coffee or whatever. But it seems like he has a partner, but not one out in the field. I will Um, say it would be pretty interesting to see motorcycle cops have ride along partners, though. Like, yeah, like (laughs) just one on the. Oh, okay, You mean on separate motorcycles. Two two on one bike. (laughs) Just hands around the hips. Yeah. (laughs) Hold on tight. I know. Okay, I see what you mean. But uh, that would be that'd be a movie I'd watch. Yeah. Um, but he's like looking at like this self-help tape right on, on this on this rack of like, you know, just shitty uh, like truck stop stuff, um, which never comes back into play. Like, I don't know. You aren't like, well, he's a guy who needs self-help because like, I mean, I guess he does because he goes through some trauma, but it has not happened yet. It happens after this scene. So I don't, I don't understand the whole self-help thing. So yeah, our first kind of big scene is he, uh, you see this station wagon driving down the road and a doll falls out of it. Um, and I feel like this was like this Nicholas Cage choice with the director where he's like, how about I'm just like driving by and I just grab the dolls I drive, <laughs> you know, cause he doesn't stop and pick it up. He does a whole sweeping move to catch the, catch the lone car on this road. And he like he he bring, he stops the car and the mom's real apologetic and the daughter is just this bitch. He's just <laughs> yes. like, did you get my doll? And he's like, yeah, I did. Hey, let's be careful, okay? Because there's like and like these giant trucks are zooming by. Yeah. He's like, we have to be considerate about other people's safety, you know. And the mom's like, oh, sorry, we're moving. And then the daughter just kind of takes the doll and just fucking chucks it out in the road again. So he's like, ah, I'll get it. And so then as he's getting the doll, the car gets hit by a truck, but it's convoluted because they're on the shoulder on the other side of the road. So for whatever reason, this truck was driving on the wrong side of the road on the shoulder, hits the car. Now everything is on fire and Nicholas Cage is trying to get the kid out of the car. She's still alive. But she's just kind of like weird and looking at him and isn't panicking. She just seems like she's expecting it. And you're kind of like, hmm, this is weird. 
Tim, that never factors into anything ever again. The weirdness of this daughter, what? Or that's my first big question for you. Oh, this can't. (laughs) Because yes, they try at the end to be like, everything that's happened is a plan. What is that plan? I'm, well, because remember, um, and I I know we'll we'll get to it in a second because it's another scene that makes no fucking sense. But there is a member uh, or quote unquote, we think a member of the uh, police department who delivers a letter to Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Pretty much right after this scene. Okay. But we come to find out later on. I liked that actress. I wish she was in the movie more. The one who played his cop friend. Well, she, really you see her. her. You you see her in the end. She's well, from the, yeah, at the very yeah, end. Yeah, from the yeah. But no, yeah, I liked her too. Right, because she I was in on it the whole time. She, I almost uh, went through training in the police academy, and and she says she says they've never found the bodies. To when she visits him at the house, she said they never found the bodies from that car. Okay, so I'm wondering if the cold, the whole car accident itself was planned. That by that, that that was those were also island people in the car that the reason why they never found the bodies is because. Yeah. But what's the point of the of causing an accident? Yeah, because he doesn't go because of the accident. He goes because he gets a letter from his former fiance. Maybe now let's just jump ahead one second. So, yes, he's kind of in a depression. He's like, well, I can't believe this happened to me. That was terrible. His his police officer friend comes by and was like, you know, come back to work you got some letters at work. Here's one. And one is from his ex fiance. That's like, my daughter is missing. And that's what makes him go. I still think he would go. I don't know. I think they're thinking that maybe like, like I, I see what you're saying. Maybe it, it's completely unrelated. It's this force. Like I couldn't save that girl. Right. I'll go yes. sp- save this girl. Y- yes. Yeah, okay. but, which is, that's an incredibly detailed plan <sighs> with yes. like, with like fire <laughs> and, yeah, and dude, like this, giant semi hits it head on right full speed right right how that girl was alive anyway or just ate like not a scratch on her no no those people are dead yeah i don't know how you without the fire and then it explodes the car explodes they get hit by a giant semi then the car explodes of course you couldn't find the bodies they evaporated Right. <laughs> there's also some just just to muddy the lake even more here. There's also some uh, suggestion that maybe that, along with pretty much anything else in this movie, might be some sort of hallucination on his part that he is that he is. Uh, I thought that, too, but I I chalk hallucinations up to the drink, but also the hallucinations you have are very specific and you cannot you cannot force someone into hallucinate, you know, to hallucinate something <laughs> right. specific. Right. Um, no, yeah, But yeah, it's obvious either way around it. It's one of <laughs> it's one of the first problems that, yes. that rears its ugly head. Um. But now here's a question now. So like you said, the, 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 why is the car is acting weird, you know, like it's like the mom is actually fran- like if this were part of the setup, they would both act creepy and weird. The mom does not seem to be the daughter. Do- yes. I would say like if the mom acted creepy and weird, I'm all about like, yes, this was as ludicrous as it sounds, this is part of the setup. But for the mom to be like so apologetic and, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. No, just sit there and like 
even better have her just smiling at him as like the truck hits them yeah. you know like <laughs> make a bigger impact that way and really fuck with his head yeah i mean this way you're just fucking with my head Right. 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 And that's the, I, I think that that's something that gets forgotten about as far as like a, an ingredient in film is that you, you can be a little ambiguous uh, intentionally, but when you're trying to convey something and your audience genuinely doesn't know what's going on because you failed to explain exactly what's happening or not even explain exactly what's happening, but you're, you're not giving your audience a mystery that's somehow going to be revealed or, or like you said, even hinted at, you know, later on in the film, it's just kind of, it happens. Yeah. But, but here's the, my next flaw. Okay. So when this fellow police officer comes to his house, this is after the accident, he's taken pills. Now he's, you know, taken some time off uh, from, from the force and he's getting ready to come back. Um, he has this letter delivered by a fellow police officer and this police officer knocks on his door. He gets the door. He invites her in, but I don't get the impression that they know each other very well. The way that they were talking makes it seem like they've known each other for a while. But then when you realize that she's actually from the Island, yeah. How long has how, she been? At the, how long has she been working there? Right. It, that, which makes no sense. It makes no um, sense. <laughs> and I did kind of like that scene because it makes no sense. Will be our new fun for this episode. Are you going to hear <laughs> right. that makes no sense a lot? <laughs> right. But either way, yeah, he gets this letter delivered, and it's delivered from this sort of mysterious sounding place that he looks up on on they have online. a website. Yeah, and. Um, I kind of liked all the website stuff. Like it just looked like a yeah, like a, 2006 like a, man. You're like, who's GeoCities? Yeah, right. And um, so then you know he he goes to the uh, he does go back to the police force and he goes into the office and he's talking with this buddy of his. This like we were thinking might be his partner, and sort of relaying what happened and and kind of like a really weird. A weird sort of aimless scene there. I mean, it's it's getting us where we need to be, but it just feels strange. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I really don't remember much of it other than he tells the buddy about the letter and the buddy's like, you should go check it out. Yeah. And you know, there's a, don't be a detective. You have a badge. And uh, even though we all play different roles, uh, you should go be a detective now. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> like the only- reason he didn't know about the bodies at that uh, crash scene was because real detectives came to look at it. Like your <laughs> right. job is writing tickets and picking dolls up off the highway. You don't get to be a detective now. No. And, and he certainly proves that he's not detective Jesus. material in the first time that he enters the bar on the Island. We'll get to that too. But um, so, yeah, so w- w- there's another plot hole right there because if they really wanted to do it right, they would have never had him mention specifically where that island is or the name of it to anyone. But someone does know where he went to. Right. You know, now his phone conversation cuts out before he really comes out and says, I'm headed there. But if you were a detective and you would say, well, what about that one letter he got that said that, you know, that he got from his ex-fiance? Like, yeah. maybe maybe I'll go check uh, out that I told him to go there. Right. <laughs> They have a website. You can look them up. Right. So a bit of a plot hole there. But um, 
But eventually he does decide to go to the island. Um, and it's an, another it's God, even just the incidental scenes in between major scenes are awful. <laughs> the you know? uh, the uh yeah, like the guy he hitches a ride with. Yeah, there's like yeah. a guy, a, a guy in a in a, a water plane who will take deliveries. Who he just kind of stumbles upon, like, hey, I'm just I don't know how to get to an island, and you have a plane. Uh, ever heard of Summer's Isle? The guy's like, I just happen to make all their deliveries all the time there, and he's like, cool. Can I get a ride? And the guy's like, absolutely not, no way. How about a hundred bucks? Well, hop on it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And but yeah, they but even the tone of the dialogue there just can't. It's not hit the fun right like note. that. It's such like yeah. It's like it's, it's so like if seriousness. It's like oh, if you're you talking, if you're talking to somebody that you that you know that you kind of don't like, and they sort of know that they don't like you. <laughs> even when you're trying to like extend an olive branch, then they say something shitty, and then it's like the, the, the relationship in that one little scene, him just trying to catch a ride to the island, is awful. Yeah. But he gets there. But he gets a ride from the guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he gets there. He meets some ladies here. I think I mentioned this earlier. And this is just the beginning of scenes that try to be scary or try to build some sort of tension. So he's talking to these old women. And then these two guys come up with this giant wriggling burlap sack that is just <laughs> dripping blood like drop big droplets are falling off of it and he's like eh, what's in the bag was that like a shark and they're like why don't you look in it and so then there's like this long intense as his hands reaching closer and then there's this close-up of the bag and then the lady's face is smiling and now his hand moving and then the bag just kind of moves a little bit and he jumps back and they all go ah, ha, 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 and everyone walks away I'm like what the fuck was that what's in and, the bag and they laugh way too long <laughs> like do. the it's camera the funniest holds. thing and then and just to backtrack for one half second if somebody had a bleeding burlap sack even if you're on an island would the first guess be that it's a shark <laughs> maybe it's like a, a fox or like a boar or something, but who just catches a shark and throws it in a gunny yeah, and sack? And it's still wriggling. Yeah. Like it's all, it, it has no way to breathe and it's bleeding profusely. And can, let's just go ahead and, and I don't, I don't want to let them off the hook for anything in this movie. Let's go ahead and mention that in that pathetic exchange between him and the, uh, the private pilot deliver slash delivery man that cage makes mention of the fact that the island isn't that far away that he could practically swim there. So <laughs> this whole island is painted like it's some sort of, you know, fortress out in the middle of the ocean that that has no contact with the outside world. But it, it's probably, I don't know, a couple miles off the coast. Right. He's like, I could swim there. Well, why don't you start? Yeah. No, here's so, $100. Okay, get it. But yeah. So he makes... I will a say... It looks beautiful there. Like the Pacific Northwest, oh, yeah. the whole Cascadia region, man, that is my jam. That is my jam so hard. I've known um, people, somebody in particular, actually, that is, has lived all across the country. And they said that if they had a choice of any of the places that they've lived and they've been in the middle, north, south, east and west, that it would be back in the Pacific Northwest oh. that, that I heard. It's just gorgeous there. Yeah. The only bad thing is they don't have thunderstorms. 
Like I would miss that. Incredibly. They don't have what? They don't have thunderstorms. It rains a lot, but for some reason, they do not get thunder that often. We That's were in weird. Portland. The one time we were in Portland, it actually thunderstormed that night and people were like, oh, they were so excited. And I was just like, you don't get these. It was like, uh, <laughs> I felt like, uh, here's a reference for you. Um, I don't even know if you'd know this one. It's a Simpsons reference. It was one of their Halloween episodes and they were doing like a time travel thing where Homer keeps messing with time travel. And he finally gets to this world where he's got a giant house and the kids are well-behaved and he's like, you know, super rich. And he's like, "Uh, Marge, would you hand me a donut? She's like, what's a donut? And he flips out and leaves. And then it starts (laughs) raining donuts outside. But that was my long story short. That was my feeling when I heard there were no thunderstorms in the Pacific (laughs) Northwest. I was like, it was idyllic. And now you've just ruined it for me. (laughs) Right. Something that might happen here in the Midwest, like maybe six to 10 times a year. But but, but because it doesn't. Yeah. Everything else out there completely just null and void is no thunder. That's interesting. Uh, It's beautiful out there. That's my main point. I just so, wanted to say that. Yeah. And no, and I'd, I'd love to go. I really would. So now he's um, in the bar. This is where we kind of get our first idea of the, uh, I guess, the hierarchy of this place. Yeah. Lot, women everywhere, not many men. And the men we do see are always kind of in the background doing labor. They don't really talk. I think it's, is it implied that they've had their cut, their tongues cut out? We never really see that, but they only grunt like they never. I think it's, you know, it's supposed to be a worker bee metaphor. But like, I I don't know if something has happened to the men or if they're just uneducated or what. I yeah, they don't. They certainly don't feed you very much to get you there other than the very odd presence of the guys and the fact that they don't talk. So it, it seems like something that should be explained further. But we do know that there's a little bit of an island doctor there who does all sorts slash of nefarious, photographer. Yeah, slash photographer <laughs> who does all sorts of nefarious things like most photographers do. And uh, and so, yeah, I guess there's enough to th- consider that maybe when a male is born on the island that they fuck with it somehow. Yes. <laughs> One way or another. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We'll reduce its chances for. um having any sort of power yeah yeah very into selective breeding yeah we find out later but it's also not a huge part that's another thing it's like well is this about crops or is this about fertility yeah which is never really covered um i I was just gonna say just real quick uh, along the way the the music uh, the score was composed by um (laughs) David Lynch's favorite go-to composer. Uh, it's Angelo. Is it? Uh, is it Baldwin and Terry? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I believe it. I, believe oh, I had it up here, and now I lost it. And I it was know. same same person that uh, composed the opening theme song for at, uh, Inside the Actor Studio. But oh. um, but the thing is, I just want to mention it real quick because while you have all of this kind of garbage acting and writing going on. It's also scored with this music that I'm not even going to say that the, that the score itself is bad, but it's it's giving you like a level of intensity 
or suspense and building towards things that actually just don't happen. Like it wants you to think that something cool is about to happen, but yes. nothing ever does. Yes. <laughs> so it's for example, because he gets a room in this inn or whatever, he's kind of in this bar. Yeah, he kind of comes in. It's like, hey, I'm a cop. I'm here. Uh, they give him a room. This is where we meet Willow, who looks like she has been stung by 20 bees in her lips, like the like the largest lips. On oh, the but I, I love it, though. It's very like, attractive. It's one of my favorite, borderline, <laughs> maybe my favorite facial feature. I love oh, big lips. I nice. love them. Um. But yeah, she has very nice lips, but they just are very large. Her eyes are like bloodshot through this whole thing. Yeah. Um, she does have amazing penmanship, though, I will say. Oh, uh, yes. Her letter is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But you're they, right. He comes a very in classically the, trained group of women. Yeah. But you're right. When he comes in, and this is going back to what I was saying earlier about he would make an awful detective. Okay. So... This is this is one of the missteps here of of probably I, I will go ahead and say probably Nicolas Cage. Um, it's he doesn't have a lot of great writing to to work with, but like like another director has said about Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage is kind of like Cyclops from the X Men, and the director is Cyclops's visor to control his power. And you have to have the ability to step in and focus that cage power. And this is where they could have used some of that and didn't. Because you're right. If you were coming to an island and you thought that a young girl's life was hanging in the balance and you needed to get information from people that were very secretive by nature, the last thing you would do is take out your badge and slap it on the bar <laughs> and announce to everybody that you are a police officer. I forgot he slaps it on the, the bar. Yeah, he does this really weird, like, rap, 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 rap. Yeah, right. And um, so immediately, everybody that you would have been trying to get information from, you've now distanced yourself from and put them on edge. Horrible police work, by the way. Yeah. Because he comes in like he's the fucking FBI. Yeah. You know, like right. he has total uh, right. Like they can literally just be like, um, leave. Yeah. Because they even say like, this is private property. It ends there. You can tell him to leave then. Yeah. But as we find out, this is all part of the plan, Tim. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> And bring them along along with that plan, maybe something that they weren't intending on, but a nice little bonus for the ladies that our uh, Nicholas Cage character, uh, Edward, is very allergic to bees. Yeah. And he's just gone to an island where they make honey. Yeah. As their primary source or only source of income. And he's it never seems worried about because he looks it up. They've got bees all over the website. He knows there's something about honey. Never once is he like, ah, that sound like if I was uh, if someone was like, hey, my daughter uh, went missing. It's here at this spider farm. I would be like, hmm, spider farm. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to go there. I guess that's more of a fear than an allergy, but I don't know. I don't really have a bad, like uh, long haired cats. Oh man. There's a long haired cat farm. Okay. You know, whatever, whatever your allergy is, you don't go. It's like the aliens from signs, like who are, who can't stand water. So they go to a planet with 70% of water. 
Yeah, like even if you didn't have an allergy, but you were going to an island where you knew that there were 60,000 chainsaws on the island, you'd be like, whew. Like, you, that's such a better uh, analogy than what I'm I trying to spit out there. Like, I'm not even allergic to chainsaws, <laughs> but in a way I am when they <laughs> when they get going, you know, like I, I'm i a little trepidatious. If there's a yeah. chance I can accidentally bump into one of those. Yeah, it could there be. are. There are 60,000 of them there. Yeah, um, there's a good chance. So after he gets his room and we meet Willow, this is one of those scenes where, it, like you said, like the score is trying to trick you into something. Because he's like, A, he has a nightmare. He has these recurring nightmares and it's about the the wreck. I mean, I guess it comes back in a dream. But again, like the dream is never full picture revealed to be a part of something else. Right. But he keeps having these dreams. I did like earlier, he has a vision where he's on the boat coming, uh, you know, on his first leg of his journey, he's on a ferry and he sees a girl standing out on like the deck and then a fucking truck hits her yeah. through his own hallucination. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere yeah. and it's supposed to be shocking, but it's hilarious. Um, but so like he, he has a nightmare and he wakes up and he hears someone laughing. And what I love is if he sees a child, any small child, he just, uh, he's like, there's Rowan, Rowan, and goes after this daughter, the girl. So he chases this girl, Rowan, who he sees, hears giggling, chases her into a barn to, and it's like, he sees her. Yes. Like, Oh, quickly, uh, you know, around a door frame or something, but it's still like three or four feet in front of him. It's not like these are obscured visions or anything like that. And he follows that up into this loft and inside the loft are two or three red herrings. <laughs> it's yes. just a cloth. And then, Oh, what's under the, what's this pile? Oh, it's just potatoes and turnips. Okay. And then the floor breaks and he kind of falls through, but catches himself. He would have only fallen a story in a barn, which is not even really that high. He would not have heard him, but that's like the peril they put him in. And now was that all part of the plan? They knew he would wake up from a nightmare. So they like sent out was, is that a hallucination? Cause they do give him some mead when he gets to the, uh, to the inn. And yeah. it's a very suspicious scene while he's drinking it. He has a very interesting reaction. Cause they're like, it's like honey wine with like spices and stuff. And he takes a sip and he's just like, mm, Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. Um, but he like drinks a lot of it. So and you know, the bartender's kind of watching him. So you're like, oh, okay, is there something in it? That never, you know, who knows? That's never answered. So you don't know if he's hallucinating this little girl, but where did she go? Was the whole point to get him to the weak point in the barn to almost kill him? Because Tim, they need him alive. And there are like three parts in this movie where they leave him to fucking die. Well, that's that brings up one of the other major issues. Um, but let me just say real quick, because I don't want to forget it. What you just described with how did they know he was going to wake up from that nightmare? And, and remember, even what he does, he hears some voices outside of like kind of like somebody saying, no, I won't do it. I won't do it or whatever. I mean, it's very, very faint, but it kind of sounds like somebody not wanting to go along with the plan. It okay. might even, it might even be so faint. I, I still watch everything with closed captioning. So sometimes you catch a lot of things that are just meant to be like muffled voices. Sure. But um, so that doesn't even make sense. But you're right. What this movie suffers from, especially in that part and in several others, is the exact same thing that you had a problem with in April Fool's Day, 
which is that there is this elaborate plan and that all these specific things have to happen in order for the plan to work. And who's got the time to monitor somebody 24 seven, you know, to, to, to time that out. But now back to what you just uh, finished up with, because it's a huge glaring plot hole. And that is if ultimately the goal here, spoiler alert, the ultimate goal here is to kill Nicolas Cage. Why not do it as soon as he gets there? Right. Hit him and with if, the or if you hammer. need him for a specific, because yeah, the, the, the Wicker Man, we'll just jump to the end. If you've never heard of the Wicker Man and know nothing about it, he gets put into a giant Wicker Man and burned alive as part of a ritual. That's it. Yeah. When he arrives at the island, it's like a house of the devil. Fucking knock him out, tie him up until you need him for the thing. Right. Why are they allowed to run around and do whatever they want? Just so yeah, like, the ritual works, but we got to have a goof before <laughs> we right. just got to, you know, I mean, we all got to have a good laugh and really trick you or send the late the letter later. <laughs> you could do that. Like, it's like if you needed to hit a specific like pagan Celtic date, send it like, like three days later, you know, <laughs> but oh, my God, you're right. Like they just that didn't make any sense to have him running around, which him running around the island is only risking. The entire plan. Why would you do that? Right. Makes no sense. Um, so, yeah. So uh, a, a little later, I do want to, he he meets a character played, I don't remember the character name, but I know it's played by Lily Sobieski, who is this actress who, do you remember her like from movies? I I do remember her. She, to me, always, she looks exactly Helen like, Hunt. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which she got but that a like lot. prettier. Yeah, yeah, and she she was in like Eyes Wide Shut. She did like some cool stuff. Yeah, and then she disappeared, and I have always kind of thought it was because she did. This was kind of after nine eleven, and listen, I know people it that date affected people very differently. We all tried to cope with it differently, but like I remember seeing her on like Jay Leno and she had written this poem about it. And it was just like the cringiest, like crashing, burning, twisting fire. Like, it's just like, who told her to read this on air? Like it was so bad. And it's like, I never saw her again after that. Uh, She was in the wicker band. Then that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Like she just kind of disappeared. Like she had a, she's not terrible. And she seemed to work with a lot of the right people. So I don't know what happened to Lily Sobieski. Yeah. She should have just sent that poem to like some German industrial band in Berlin, like (laughs) crashing, burning, pushing fire. Like like that that would have been the right audience. (laughs) Yes. That sounds awesome. Now imagine, now imagine like a 19 year old girl reading that on the Jay Leno show. Yeah. No, no. Um, But yeah. So, and, and she has this weird moment because she is really off putting and then like really nice to him. I don't understand her character at all. Yes. Like I, I can't remember. This is the first time we see him, but he's like got a big plastic jar of honey. And he's like, uh, I'm out of honey. Don't you guys make this stuff? She's like, the stuff we make is not for you. I'm like, well, where did this plastic jar come from? Would you know when you would never buy a plastic jar of honey if that's what you made at the Island, regardless, it right. seems weird for that. But then he like meets up with her later and she says this thing to him, which I will bring up again. 
but she says like, when you leave, will you take me with you? And he's just like, um, no. Okay. But I will say I do kind of like Nicholas Cage's attitude in this movie because it is how I was feeling where he's just like, this is a lot of fucking dumb stuff going on. <laughs> right, like, right. He goes to the, he goes to the, uh, uh, schoolhouse right to kind of investigate there because it's a small child that's missing and see if the school knows anything and as he walks in like they're they're answering some question and the answer is phallic symbol phallic symbol and he's just like oh, wow school's not how it used to be when i was little and you're like yeah uh so he like he does say a lot of what you're thinking in that movie uh, like in also in that school scene, he finds a bird trapped in a desk and they're like, we just wanted to see how long it would last in there. And he's like, why would you let them do this? And you're like, yeah, why? Yeah, that that scene has a couple memorable moments. My favorite being when he just flat out calls these sweet little school children liars to their face yeah. like it is hysterical. But no, you're right with that. That scene with. um uh What's her name? Sobieski? Yeah, Lily Sobieski. Yeah. You're, you're very right that that's a puzzling scene because her um, demeanor towards him seems very sincere. And it doesn't at all match up with when we see her again later on. Like, it's it's completely like you think that she really does want him to take her. but. Yeah. She oh, we'll, really, just, we'll kind of jump to it. It's not too important. Yeah. But yeah, there is kind of like a little stinger scene where it's her and Willow at a bar with more crazy cameos, James Franco and Jason Ritter, <laughs> just in these small bit parts at the end of this movie. And um, and they're there to kind of it looks like to reel more men yeah. back in to but kind Lily of Sobieski it. says to James Franco she's like where are you going when you leave here and he's like well I'm going back to my house she's like when you go there will you take me with you which I get is a callback to when she said it before but the fucking context that she said it in before is completely different right she's on the island and it's like it seems like get me away from here this place is bad Right. No, she's now she's using it as is it just like a Tourette's thing she has where she can't help but say that maybe she, in, at the end of every conversation. Maybe she was just practicing it on Nicolas Cage like for later. But, but right. remember, she's got a scene in between there. The one that I'm talking about where she just fucking attacks Nicolas Cage. No, that's at the end. Oh, yeah. At the end. Yeah. Yeah. But but um, oh, but in I mean, between the very end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she does. Yeah. They were just like, uh, can we get Nicolas Cage to beat the shit out of a woman? Right. <laughs> cool. And have Lily Sobieski attack him for no reason. Right. Attack him for no reason. And then have him like, <laughs> I'm sure Dude. that there's some defensive, you know, uh, self-defense work that goes on in police training. But there's no implication that he has like any sort of fighting skill. So when he decides to just like throw her this full on Chuck Norris sidekick. Oh, my God. Into the wall. It's like, where the fuck did that come from? It's like so brutal, like right into her chest. Yeah. It's a nice kick. Very effective. But uh, yeah. So um, but it, yeah, that just speaks to the the unevenness is probably I mean, w you said earlier that we were going to say that our overly repeated phrase was going to be um doesn't make any sense but really it's it's um it's just an uneven tone like the the scenes and the characterizations don't match up from scene to scene yeah um 
oh, more at that school. They're more of as a police abuse because he's, yeah, he's flashing the badge around and it's hilarious, but it is so hilarious because the badge just says like highway patrol on it. Yeah. So it doesn't, it just looks comical. And then he's like, he like fucking wrestles the attendance book out of the teacher's hand. I just yeah. be like, dude, that's evidence you can't use now. Are you a cop? I know right. more of this than you do, dude. Um, I do love, there is this crazy and maybe I'm misreading this part, but she comes in and, you know, he's like, Oh, I'm looking for uh, Rowan. And she's like, mm, that's rather quixotic. And he's like, uh, what is quixotic? You know? And she's like a pursuer, but of lofty, but impractical ideals. Okay. So now she's defined what quixotic is right now. They go outside to talk and, and she says something about, you know, like, oh, the mother Willow is actually grieving. And he's like, why is Rowan dead? And she's like, well, we don't use the word death around here. And he's like, mm, too quixotic. Like, what? No, that's how? <laughs> right. Yeah. You not, just completely use that wrong. That is such a small nitpick, but it was just one where I was just like, why even fucking write that? Right. Other than just to be like, remember when we used the word quixotic before? Because it relates as well ago. in this scene as it does as anything else relates to each other in the whole movie. I guess maybe it's at least consistent in its inconsistency. Yeah, and, and this a lot of this goes back to what I've read in, in several interviews, which is that Neil Labute just was just so out of his element. Like what he's known for is sort of like dealing with you know kind of the the underbelly of the human condition and the darker side of people or maybe the more sinister side of people um, but but in the context of like normal contemporary relationships he writes relationship movies you know and this the idea of him doing anything that has any sort of fantasy thriller or horror element to it it's just completely not what he does and and it's so clear because none of uh, you've got those exchanges that make no sense. You've got no the absolute absence of tension in this movie, yeah. um, which is something that we've talked about earlier, is that you take Nicolas Cage out of this movie and it's it's a just a snooze fest. You know, there's there's nothing interesting or um, suspicious yeah. or anything like the only interesting things are remembered as like you said, it's because of the way Nicholas Cage says them. There's the, you know, how to get burned, how to get burned. That's that resonates. Right. Um, there's a whole scene and here's what's crazy. Should we, I don't know. I feel like I'm, we're jumping around, but also like <laughs> laser focusing on so much dumb stuff, but it's <laughs> fine. Um, I, I'll cause yeah. And there's like the whole bees thing, which technically isn't even in, the actual version of the movie. That's the scene. It seems everyone knows it's not the bees as they pour bees into this helmet, not even in the theatrical release of this movie. It's a deleted scene, which is crazy. Um, But yeah, it's Nicholas Cage is selling this whole thing is, was your point, And I'm agreeing with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And yeah, the, the, the rest of the movie is just dull is all get out. And um and, and it really makes me want to see the original because I'm I'm given to understand that there's just um, a lot more flavor with like the um, the Celtic angle of things and folk music and the religion and this like um, there's just a whole nother layer that this movie doesn't have because this movie's 
the the replacement layer is just honey manufacturing, <laughs> right? You know, which is not not nearly as interesting or cool. Um, but yeah. just to go ahead, just go ahead. to get to to speak to something that I said earlier about is this Neil Labute's rebuttal to his feminist critics is that is and it's not very i mean it's it's very thinly veiled right like that that these women have sort of plucked a guy who had nothing to do with them who didn't start any trouble with them just doing his job doing his own thing and they plucked him out and um you know even that famous line at the end where you know <clears throat> The killing me isn't going to bring back your goddamn honey, which might might be my favorite it's line. I mean, line. there's a lot to choose from, but um, kind of like coming after me and attacking me as a writer is not going to fix what you perceive to be your problems. And I don't even subscribe to your problems as feminists, but you're attacking. So you're somehow bringing me into it and I've got nothing to do with you. And yeah. so when you look at it that way, it's like, well, that's, I think that's what he's trying to do here, you know? And yeah, man, that's, I did not even think about uh, that angle on it. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense way more than anything that's presented in this movie yeah. for sure. Right. Attacking. Um, yeah. Attacking which I me. guess. Yeah. If you're just going to use like a project, as your, you know, own rebuttal. I guess this is the one to do it with. <laughs> right. It's just, I mean, man, that's an expensive rebuttal. It well, is. Well, that's true. Yeah, you didn't even made half your budget back. I guess so, I take that back. It probably wasn't the best use of fun. <laughs> but, but if you, but I mean, it's, it, you have to believe though, because honestly, it, that whole misogyny thing with uh, Neil LeBute, is in nearly every interview. Now I have read some interviews with um, female interviewers that stated that they didn't see misogyny in his work at all. And that they thought that he had been so incorrectly maligned for that. Um, and, and he agreed with that. Like he said, I, yeah, I never set out to, to degrade any sex or race or anything like that at all. And yeah. that people just didn't like, seeing males behave in a way that sometimes males behave, you know, all I'm doing is showing it. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's good. Right. I'm like, showing it. Yeah. So, Cause so they, those the, guys come off as the villains in that movie. Like, right. You don't feel. And good so about I, them. I, I, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe he did risk it all. And well, and, I wish he had just put more effort into putting a good story around it. Cause that's <laughs> right. something I would have really enjoyed. That's yeah. fine. I think, you know, if you've got something to say, great, but Jesus Christ. Yeah. Do a better job. of There's there. We talked about the dream <laughs> sequence earlier. There's another scene where a, he hears like the, the, the plane come back. So he runs down to the dock. Um, it must've taken him, you know, five minutes to get down there and the guy's nowhere to be seen. And his boat's like out a little in the water. It's not like it's pulled up to the dock, right? Yeah. Yeah, the plane. So <clears throat> it would have taken him time to get off there or whatever. So he's just sitting there waiting for the guy. And he like sees under the dock. He sees Rowan. He's like, oh, shit. He dives under the dock. 
and like tries to get and she's like chained up and you just tell she's like bloated and drowned it's like no and then (gasps) he pops up awake and you're like okay cool another dream and then like the camera pans back and he's now he's holding the dead bloated girl and he's like oh and then boom like wakes up again and says what everyone is feeling literally just goes god damn it (laughs) yeah so not the reaction not the delivery that you would expect from that line like you think somebody would say it in a frightened way like god damn it like or or actually god damn it is probably miswritten like you would maybe say something like oh my god you know (laughs) right had this horrible like hallucination or something but yeah the the fuck what the fuck's great there right but the fact that he says god damn it like like if you stubbed your toe, like in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom, like it's it's he chooses a very strange delivery to use on that. But even before that, one of my favorite parts of that scene is, OK, I get it. He's diving off of the pier to go underneath it. And if you know you're going to be diving only to go back underneath something, maybe you would put a little twist in. But he does this like weird, like probably pretty like he's ready to like swim under the dive. Yeah, he does like a full twist. Yeah, yeah, which is I noticed that. I mean, it's I guess it's kind of cool, like good on him to to think that through. But uh, it just looks silly. I mean, it, it it comes off as silly. Um. But yeah, so I mean, there are a lot of other scenes and I don't, we don't really need to go in too much. Like he meets up with the doctor photographer and, you know, he just meets up with these characters and then reveals a little bit more that maybe Rowan's alive or, but there's just so much uh, uh, ambiguity about it. No one answers him right, but but there's no good mystery built around it. He does, um, again, hear her. There's like this weird kind of burnt out church or something with like a cage in the middle of it and then stairs inside the cage going down to like these lower catacombs and he goes down there and there's like it's almost like a big door on a big reservoir or well or something there's water down there so he like dives in because he's sure Rowan is in there and then they close it on him and fucking leave him there overnight like that you lose your grip and get tired you're dead you're he, right. he only has the door to hang on to <clears throat> like he's he's to hold hoist himself up and hold himself there so again why put him in these perilous scenarios where he could die that then fuck up eight years of planning because exactly. as we find out this has been planned from the start from when rowan was conceived Yes. Which makes no sense because the whole idea of the bringing of the sacrifice because the crops were bad. That was from the year before. Right. So what the fuck? Well, I think they just stockpile these guys for when they need them. Like they're they're always hunting, always luring. Oh, um, like every just, year they've got yeah. a guy. And so yeah. it's just because in, in that year it happened. It's like, I guess it's will it. Yeah, we'll go ahead and uh, bow. Yeah, yeah. So that's, but you're right. Other other than that, it doesn't make any sense. And the fact that they would risk this guy's life so many times before the actual ceremony itself makes makes zero sense. And 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 that just goes to show that I don't know how professionals don't think this through. Yeah. I mean, how do you not have a script in front of you? It's it's written front to back. How do you not know that that? 
these things aren't linking into each other sensically. Yeah. Like that's your job <laughs> is to make a, a coherent story. Right. Like, it was like that, uh, not to crap on Wonder Woman more, but the more I thought about like, there's so much stuff in that movie. Like there is, uh, I guess, spoilers for Wonder Woman, but it's essentially like people make wishes and they come true. And so she wishes that her boyfriend from World War I was back. So he comes back, but they don't do it to where he just reappears. He like takes over a dude's body and then she has sex with him. And then they take him to like Cairo. And so they take this stranger who has no control over his body and they put him in, they a technically rape him and then put him in like life-threatening situation after life-threatening situation. And then are just like, well, I guess that part's over. Like, but no one is like, Hey, what about the, this dude? Like what happens to this dude? Does he have a family? Does he have a job that he's missed? You know, like who's, who's on the script level. That's like, here's a glaring issue that we can easily, you can easily fix them. You sound like there's just no way around it. There's no way around it. And we're assuming that once he's taken control of this poor bastard's body that 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 guy that host body doesn't have any consciousness anymore right yes because she meets him up later and he doesn't recognize her so he just blacked out for three days or something so he, so he gets to bang gal gadot and then doesn't even get to remember it. Know it oh that is the worst part i of know it. and there is a part at the end when she's talking to him and i'm like Give him one last ride. Let him know. Yeah. No. And she yeah. doesn't. I'm just like, this poor set. <laughs> oh, wow. man. Yeah. But anyway, that's a whole, we're not talking about superhero <laughs> no, movies. No. We're talking um, about other movies with issues. But that's, I mean, that's essentially the movie. The end is he finally, like, <laughs> he disguises himself in a bear suit. There's a whole thing with the bear suit, which is only funny because he just he punches like two people while dressed in this bear. He just knows just to punch people. He's just punching people now. One might be a karate chop, actually, like an old school 70s karate chop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, he finds Rowan. She's all tied up. He like rescues her. They run into the woods and then she kind of leads him back to the people. And they're all like, ha ha ha. This was all a plan. She's like, did I do good, mommy? I'm like, what, what is the point of the whole of that whole ruse? Just when he wakes up that morning, put a fucking bag over his head. Right. <laughs> Spike his mead and put him in the wicker man. Yeah. And then and then, you know, the reaction of Willow, who has gone to the trouble to go off the island, find him, you know, start a relationship with him, get impregnated by him, come back to the island you know, continue the ruse and getting him back there. So she's gone through a lot with this guy. And if they wanted to play it in such a way that her face reads some sort of regret, that's a fine choice. Like, I don't have a problem with that. But instead, her eyes are kind of rolling back in her head. And she seems sort of like tranced out and and just distant and it, it, none of yeah. it makes sense. It's it's a horrible choice. But then she is like really ha proud of her daughter. Like the daughter's like, "Did you good, mommy?" She's like, "You did so good." Like, like she's fully on board. But yeah, like, and then she'll go into this like, "I can't believe this is happening." And then there's one part because he goes to shoot his gun, and they've taken all the bullets, and she's got them in her hand, and she does this move where her her face looks like. I'm so sorry. But then like the way she like lets them trickle out and then she just kind of does this move for like, she turns her hand over and it's this weird kind of 
in your face taunting like i don't really care about this but her face says like yeah i'm so sorry this happened here i'm just like i don't understand what you're trying to convey in this part and it's, it's con- revealed that she's ellen burston's daughter which is unimportant like this is another like okay who cares well yeah and Does it, it always have to be your daughter is she just like farming kids out to random men nonstop? Yeah, and that's where you're really forced to stretch your believability here is that the very basic concept that an island like this could exist at all anyway, that that there wouldn't be some detractors, that there wouldn't be somebody that finds out about it, um, that there isn't somebody that would. I mean, the fact that they've got everybody hook, line and sinker sucked into this idea of we grow honey and we get and we use men for breeding and sometimes we kill them if we have bad crops the fact that nobody has had problems with that for generations right. six generations yeah that that like uh, they 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 had to move from salem because they were persecuted there like their their click has is over 200 years old like it's 300 400 years old here yeah yeah, it just it's it's incredibly far fetched, and I did I did want to say there was there was one image in here where I'm like, that's actually pretty clever. That's funny because it's it's a part where <laughs> it's set up oddly because Nicolas Cage is just pushing this bike around sometimes. He's oh, not yeah. riding the bike, <laughs> and he helps these guys, you know, with some logs, and that's where he's like, the men here are weird. But right after that, there's another shot, just kind of a lingering shot where you see other men in the back and they're kind of toiling, like carrying these huge reeds up a hill and standing there are two women and the outfits they're in are kind of this, um, uh, what's the, um, oh my God, what's that show on Hulu? The one about uh, the women are subservient uh, the, the with Elizabeth Moss. I can't think of what it's called right now. Um, but they have like the red cloaks and these big white hoods and there. It's like this future America where it's like a theocracy now and women oh, are just okay. like, God, I can't think of what it's called and it's driving me crazy. But they have kind of those outfits on with these beekeeper masks on the front. But then they also have like, they're holding these like hive smokers that you would use to like get the bees docile. But the way they're like, hung on them they look like guards with these ak-47s but they're just these big bee smokers i was like that's clever all right i'll give you that one movie i like that part uh but that's like the end of any kind of enjoyment i had in this movie yeah and if it if it really all boils down to essentially two extras costumes then you know (laughs) if that's the best part of the movie yeah then you know you're in trouble. So speaking of best part of the movie, it it brings us back to now that we've established that there are some issues with this film. It brings us to this interesting sort of I don't even know if paradox is the right word, but um, the following and the enthusiasm around this movie, um, in spite of its faults and actually because of its faults. Sure is pretty huge. And there are people that really love this movie in a sort of, um, I don't want to go so far as to say like Rocky horror, because I think Rocky horror fans love the schlock of Rocky horror, but they yeah. also genuinely love that movie. Um, I, I think that this is all just in mockery. 
<laughs> yeah. Like, this is like the room or something. Right. Where it's just like, I, everyone likes the room. I need a different bad movie to obsess right. over. And this is a fine choice. Exactly. Because you I, are not short of anything as far as bad movies go. So we have to say, because, we, you know, we usually make some comment on how we suggest a, a movie should be enjoyed. Yep. And that is to to completely watch this as a joke from from beginning to end. Uh, anything else is only going to be it's either going to piss you off how inept this movie is. Or if you go into it as one big joke, you'll actually have some fun with it. So <sighs> it's not worthless it feels a little bit like a waste of time at the end. Um, I probably wouldn't watch it over and over and over again because it's the ineptness would would get to me. Yeah. But there is room to enjoy this as a train wreck at least once in your life. Yes. I mean, just for Nicolas Cage, but also you can just go online and there are so many videos of all the Nicolas Cage highlights from this movie. Yeah, I would true. say just do that. Because <laughs> the context of it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't add anything. I mean, I guess it would make a little more sense if you just hear him yell, how to get burned, how to get burned. I don't, I don't even know. I watched it twice. I'm not sure what that was all about. Why did they burn the doll? I don't care. Well, that's what I thought, that the doll was actually what the girl was holding in the car. That, that exploded. That's why I thought that maybe that, oh, is that supposed to be that doll. I think, I think so. I think, <sighs> I think, I think I made, that's why that was another reason why I was thinking Movie's of that. It exhausting. Might be the, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. But uh, and we barely talked. I mean, we kind of talked about Ellen Burstyn, but I mean, there's really not much more to say about her in this movie. She's great. It's kind of crazy watching those two and be like, is do we equate this as like the diner scene in Heat with like De Niro and Pacino, where you've got two Oscar winners? Kind of, yeah. You could <laughs> say that. Gonna see, yeah, sure. People were clamoring for it, I'm sure. Burst in Cage, yeah. And she is really, I mean, like we said earlier, she's she's great. She has um, just a real genuine believability, and there's a great shot of her as this kind of. As the, you know, we finally do see her as this matriarchal queen bee in this bed and her hair is down and silver and she's got, that's a cool image too. The silk sheets and she's just being catered to. Yeah. And and she does uh, project the uh, appearance of somebody who, who is in charge, but she's not overplaying it with uh, sort of a maniacal crazy person intensity right. she's just very um, confident and calm yeah she does it she does far and away the best job of anyone in the movie although i will say i did kind of like sister beach uh who is the sort of uh formidable uh matchup to nicholas kid the one that has the, the tavern uh, the, yeah oh my god dude i she's that was some like the worst like middle school line reading <laughs> I've ever you know, heard. And I've seen her and stuff, and I do like her. I think it's the just way liked, she handled her lines. This was everything predetermined <laughs> for you, wasn't it? You know, just like so right. many like dumb pauses and it's true. She has, but that is about what, what she sounds like. I guess I think I yeah, you're right. The the performance isn't great. The I guess I just like her presence. Yes. Uh, she she could have been used a lot better because I have yeah. seen her stuff. She's a and she's a really good I'm blanking on her name, I didn't write it down, but she is a good uh voice actress. She does a lot of like voiceover work. Um, but 
and I, I can't, I can't picture what I feel like I saw her in like a Disney show or something, but I've always enjoyed her when I've seen her, but I can't pinpoint any like great thing she's done. But in this, I was just like, Oh, awful. She's basically like a tall Kathy Bates. <laughs> she is. That's essentially what she is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and who doesn't like Kathy Bates? But uh, yeah, so that that's, uh, I, I don't know and if there's. I want to end it on the most painfully unaware line in the whole movie where, <laughs> uh, and, and I should say, we, should, we haven't said that uh, Ellen Burstyn's name is Sister Summer's Isle. She is Summer's Isle. Yes. Um, and she's telling Nicolas Cage about how predestined all of this was. And she's like, you, you are part of a story, a story whose chapters were carefully written. Mm. <laughs> uh, man, you can't get more ironic than that. Yeah. And, and uh, wouldn't it be like a story whose lines were care like, why would you pick the chapters? Like, right. yeah. Like, How many I mean, chapters were, he seems to have been part of one chapter. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. And there's, that's, a, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's, it's worth itemizing the bad and the writing is horrific in this. The, I mean, we've talked about some of the, the performances and the line deliveries, but they had nothing to work with as far as a, uh, any sort of, professional level script writing it's yeah. it's bad yeah all right well good let's not talk about it anymore no all right that was a wicker man from 2006 tim we're going to continue with horror through the cages next week we're going to talk about a little film from 2017 called mom and dad starring nicholas cage and selma blair sure that, to be a little better than this one. Oh, i love this movie i love that i love that movie i should say um <laughs> yeah and that that's gonna be a whole different conversation because for me at least i loved every bit of that movie. yeah I, yeah i'm looking forward to talking about it just because i know my energy will go up a little bit okay yeah. so that's gonna be next week uh please uh follow us on instagram at slumber podcast massacre uh send us an email slumber at gmail.com our patreon is patreon.com slash slumber podcast massacre a huge thanks to all our patrons you help make the show possible and uh, we hope you're getting your money's worth uh so yeah check out next week mom and dad 2017 tim do you have anything left to say about the wicker man step away from the bike <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he holds someone at gunpoint to tell them to get away from his bicycle. Oh, man, that's just a perfect metaphor for this movie. It, yeah, it's full of lovely lines like that. All right, Tim. Well, um, will you take me with you? I got nothing. All right, fuck it. I'll, I'll <laughs> see you later, Tim. Until next time. Bye. Bye.